you have a Bible, please open it to uh, the 115th Psalm, Psalm 115. The notes this morning's message are, are in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, the text of Psalm 115 is printed in full on the back of the notes. So the notes are in the bulletin, the text is on the back of the notes. If you have a Bible, please open to Psalm 115. God willing, we will conclude not only Psalm 115, as our second week on it, but <clears throat> conclude our prolonged study of the Psalms, at least this phase of it. God willing, next week we'll begin Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. I'd like to begin by reading Psalm 115 and then um, having a word of prayer. <clears throat> not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but... Do not feel feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made the heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down to silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Lord God, as we look to this song, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And let us hear that refrain to trust you, to fear you, to know you, and to rely upon you. Lord, we would experience your blessing, the blessing that comes to those who trust you. We would praise you with the words of our lips. Guard us and our hearts from idols and the futility they present. And give us a heart wholly devoted to you, a trust firm and resolute upon you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we began our study of Psalm 115 last week. I'd like to briefly review. Um, we looked at the first three verses in which we saw petitions to God, and the three petitions set up the three responses of the last um, section of the psalm. We saw a petition to God in heaven that he would glorify himself alone, that he would silence the taunts of the nations, that he would accomplish his will from heaven. And we see at the end of the psalm, silence, God in heaven, and praise and glory going to God. Then, 
hinging on the contrast of the answer to the taunt, the taunt of the nations being, where is their God? And we don't know the context in which Psalm 115 was written, but something like the Babylonian captivity would work. Other situations may work. But there's some scenario where pagan nations watching, it seems to them as though God has not acted. God has been impotent. God has forgotten. God has failed in some sense, such that the taunt comes to their lips, where is their God now? Well, the answer is, you may not see what God's doing on earth because God is not in a hut, on a pole carved in wood. God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases, which brings about the contrast of the futility of trusting in idols. And, and we looked at how he, the, the point is the idols have an appearance of efficacy. They have an appearance of power. They have eyes that see, that do not see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have feet, but do not walk. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have throats that do not make a noise. They are utterly powerless, utterly impotent, even as they appear to be powerful and hearing and seeing and speaking. And that, that is the contrast between the living God and idols. Idols may look the part, but they are unacting and impotent. More to the matter, those who worship them and make them become like them. And we closed our time last week talking about how God made us to worship. Every one of us is a worshiper. There's nobody who is not a worshiper. And what you worship will conform you to its image. You will become like what you behold. You will resemble what you revere. Which is why in Romans 12, the warning is, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're becoming like what you're beholding. You are resembling what you're revering. There is no neutral position. Whatever you hold in esteem and in admiration, whatever you hold in awe, you will begin to act and emulate and imitate. I mean, it makes sense, does it not? What do children do? My children, you, know, you show them the Star Wars movie, and they're out running around pretending there's lightsabers. They want to imitate what held them in awe, what excited them, what seemed great and grand. We all do that to varying degrees. We, we imitate. And the, the danger here is people who worship idols will become equally ineffective, impotent, blind, and deaf. This is the setup for all of the language in the New Testament where Jesus talks about seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. It's playing on the logic of verse 8. That when Jesus pronounces those types of judgments, what he's saying is, I am speaking to a people who has already become like the deaf, blind, and dumb idols. It's a a declaration. He's speaking to people already conformed to that image, which means that their blindness and their deafness and their dumbness is their own fault. It's a judgment upon them. They are now in a state of blindness because they have worshipped idols. They are now in a state of deafness because they have worshipped idols. And we know that idols are not always overt. We know that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says covetousness and greed is idolatry. And so this is a, a massive verse and paradigm pattern for reading even the New Testament. All of those, he who has ears to hear, who has eyes to see, let him see, let him hear. It's all playing off of and referencing this. And so after announcing this utter futility, and the contrast could not be greater. Our God, verse 3, is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. There's no frustration to his pleasure, to his design, to his desires. He has no purposes that are not accomplished. 
in utter contrast to that are these deaf, dumb, mute idols and their worshipers. So we leave the folly of trusting in idols now to the main thrust of the psalm, a call to trust in and a celebration of the blessing of trusting in the Lord. So the blessing of trusting the Lord, verses 9 to 15, the blessing of trusting the Lord. And now we enter into what is sometimes referred to from a musical setting as as antithonal. Um, Or you may have heard of a cantor. What you have is call and response. So the exhortation of the call, right, is, O Israel, trust in the Lord. And then another voice responds, he is their help and their shield. And the reason you can identify different voices, the first voice is speaking to Israel, not about Israel. O Israel, direct address, trust in the Lord. He is there, the there being Israel. So now you've got a third party making the observation, the Lord is their help and their shield. Or you're getting a warrant or a reason. Why should I trust in the Lord? Well, because the Lord is their help and their shield. So trust in the Lord. You get this antithetical response. Now, I want to make an observation that may, may, um, may be easy to skip over. We've just seen the contrast between the Lord and idols. In your first blank here, we have a call to trust the Lord. And blank number one, trust in the Lord and his word. And his word. The text doesn't make this explicit, but I think it's implicitly present. Does Israel have any carved image or representation of the Lord God? When you know the answer, you can just say, does Israel have a carved image of God? Should they? No. In fact, it's expressly prohibited in the Ten Commandments, right? Now, I want you to pause and think about the implications of this. Um, This is radical. In fact, it was Neil Postman in in a book of his that pointed this out. It's one of those things that's so obvious, but once you see it, you're like, how did I never see this? Unlike all the other nations of the land who have idols, images you can draw near to, that you can revere, that you can venerate, that you can worship, Israel is strictly forbidden, which means this. How does one approach, how does one learn of, how does one worship the God of the Israelites? Through language only. God has spoken words about himself. He has given you words in Psalms you can speak to him. The only exchange and approach to the God of the Israelites is linguistic. There are no images. There are no um, pictures. You can learn of him only by speaking of him. I cannot say, here's a picture, here's what he's like. That's the whole point. Who will you compare me to, God says. I can't say, see this big brazen bull. God's kind of like that. Can't do that. It's forbidden. I can tell you about him. I can say, this is what God says of himself. And as you approach to him, you come with words of praise, songs of praise, like what we're studying this morning. And so we've seen the utter emptiness of idols. And as you're called to trust in God, you're not called to trust in some object. We've already seen our gods in the heavens. There's nothing to see on earth. But there is a word he's given. So if implicit in this call to trust in the Lord is the only thing God's given you to trust in is his word. He hasn't given you an image. He hasn't given you an idol. He hasn't given you any such thing. He's given you his word. And so any call to trust in the Lord, the Lord who's in heaven, is an implicit call. And the contrast is implicit to the pagan gods. Trust in his word. 
This is why education has always been linked with Christianity and Judaism before it, because the Christians have understood if you are to draw near to this God, if you're to know who he is, you must have some level of linguistic ability. You must be able to speak and to hear. You must be able to understand those things. This is one of the reasons why, even in the, the Middle Ages, Roman Catholicism brought in icons and images, precisely because in their understanding that the stupid people, the uneducated people, couldn't possibly approach God through words. They needed the crutch of images. They needed the crutch of things to venerate. The whole point, starting back at the Ten Commandments, is no, train your people up so that they can understand words, because that's the only thing God has given us that we might know him by. Even the, the Son of God is, in the beginning was the Word. So don't, don't miss that. We've just scoffed at the futility of idols. They may look powerful. And then there's this call to trust in God. Well, if there isn't an idol, what are you trusting in? Well, certainly not some vague sense of what you hope God will do. You're trusting in his word in contrast to vain idols. So trust in the Lord and his word. Second, trust in the Lord who saved his people. Now this threefold refrain, he is their help and shield, verse 9. He is their help and shield, verse 10. He is their help and shield, verse 11, is borrowed from um, the song, The End of Deuteronomy. Keep your finger here and please turn to Deuteronomy 33. It's the only other place outside of the Psalms, and there's only one other song that borrows it probably from Deuteronomy 33, where this type of phrase is used. And what we have is Moses' farewell address, and he goes through a series of blessings of the tribes. So in Deuteronomy 33, he blesses Reuben in verse 6, Judah in verse 7, Levi in verse 8, Benjamin in verse 12, Joseph in verse 13, Zebulun in 18, Gad in 20, 22 is Dan, 23 Naphtali, 24 Asher, and then starting... In verse 26, summing up the whole thing, we've done going tribe by tribe. Now is this sort of summary, and I want you to hear this account of God's goodness and the call to trust and to praise him. There is no God, there is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place. Isn't that Amazing, they're getting ready to cross the Jordan to take possession of the land. And Moses, who will not go with them to the land, tells them, make no mistake, it's God himself who is your dwelling place. That shows up again in Moses' only psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 90. But the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath of the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. So this three-pulled repetition, he is their help and shield, is echoing Moses' celebration of God's deliverance from Egypt, the exodus, and the promised conquest of Canaan. 
That's what it's echoing. So the reminder is he's calling on the psalm, calls upon these different groups to trust God, is looking back at how faithful God was in the events of the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan. He is their help and their shield. Trust in the Lord, here's your blank, who saved his people. Trust in the Lord who saved his people. So it's a call to trust in the Lord, trusting in his word, echoing the deliverance from Egypt, the Exodus, the conquest of Canaan. I want to notice one other thing. We have three groups who show up here. First group addressed to trust in the Lord is Israel. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. Then in verse 10, oh, house of Aaron, the priests, trust in the Lord. And then we get, you who fear the Lord. A little less clear. And you'll notice in the response of the blessing, starting in verse 12 and 13, that threefold groupings show up again. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He'll bless the house of Aaron. He'll bless those who fear the Lord. Now, what's interesting here, I think, is the emphasis in being, and here's your blank, trust in the Lord, you who are far off. Now, I don't know when the shift takes place, but by the time we get to the New Testament, there is a category for Gentiles who, who have come near and begun to worship the God of Israel. They're called God-fearers. Now, here is fear the you who fear the Lord. So it's not nearly the same, and, and it, we don't know when it begins, but by the time, and I got the references there in Acts, you can see Paul's address to Gentiles. Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, is referred to in Acts 10 to a devout man who feared God. In Acts 13, 16, Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, men of Israel and you who fear God. In Acts 13, 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. As best as we can tell, by the time Acts shows up, God-fearer is a Gentile convert to Judaism, a Gentile worshiper of Yahweh. I don't know when that begins, but here the emphasis seems to be getting broader and broader, especially as we see the, the, the uh, response pair. If you look at verse um, 13, he will bless those who fear the Lord, I mean, this added bit, both great and small. And again, the emphasis seems to be broadening out, getting wider. So here's the point. The call to trust in the Lord, no matter how great or small you are, no matter how far off you are, whether you're spiritually privileged or unprivileged, whether you're from the house of Aaron, the priesthood in Israel, or whether you're someone who fears God, the only qualification here is fearing God, taking him seriously and trusting in him. That's the call. The call is to trust God. Even in the psalm that talks about praising God, as I I said even earlier, praise comes out of a response of trust, a response of worship. There is a God who has done great things. There's a God who's kept his promises to Israel. There's a God who has redeemed his people, has delivered them from slavery. This God can and should be trusted. And the contrast, again, is in don't trust these idols that can't do anything. Trust God. Trust the Lord. The rest of the psalm pulls out the blessings of trusting the Lord. But here is this call, call and response. The, the, the cantor calling out, O house of Israel, trust in the Lord. And then the response, he is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So there's the exhortation and the call to trust God. And put that in contrast. 
Don't trust money. Trust the Lord. Don't trust your securities. Trust the Lord. Don't trust the power of man. Trust the Lord. We could go through this extensively, but that will be the the test in our hearts is who we will act upon, who we will um, build our lives upon. You want to know who you trust, whose truth you're willing to act upon. Let me see how you spend your money. Let me see the choices you make through your day. And I'm pretty sure I could figure out who and what you worship and trust. And the call here is to go beyond fearing God to trusting in God, to be willing to act upon what he says, trust his promises, act upon those. That's the call, to trust the Lord. You who are far off. Now next, in verses 12 to 13, we'll see the consequence of trusting the Lord. So first, a call to trust the Lord in verses 9 to 10. And then in verses 12 to 13, the consequence of trusting the Lord. The consequence of trusting the Lord. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Now this is put in the future tense because again, remember, presumably, The people are not seeing or experiencing God's blessing now. Now, there's some cause for the nations to say, where's your God? Right? So it's put in the future tense. And again, we're reminded, even as God is faithful and God is mindful of us, we will go through seasons where we may look around for his blessings and not see them. The confident response is, the Lord will bless in his time. He's in heaven. He does all that he pleases. And if it pleases him to delay, if it pleases him to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. We will follow. So the consequence of trusting the Lord. And the first, notice, before the blessings come is this confidence that the Lord has remembered. It's the past tense. Everything else is future. I want you to get that distinction. It's not God will remember. He has remembered. And because he has remembered, the logic is he will bless. This again links back to the Exodus. One of my favorite passages, Exodus 2. You don't need to turn there, but the entire Exodus narrative starts with a chapter of transition. Genesis ends with Israel in a high position. Joseph is the second in the land of Egypt. His people are given a privileged place. Everything seems great. And chapter 1 of the book of Exodus gives us the change of Uh, surroundings, the change of environment that gets us from these privileged people to people in slavery. And it begins, there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, right? And you hear about his plan to to kill and slaughter the Israelites' children. And you get to the end, and you read the end of Exodus chapter 2, these wonderful words. So chapter 1 and chapter 2 have set up the dire peril of the Israelites in Egypt. And listen to this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. The cry for rescue came from, rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And it's immediately in chapter 3 where the Lord God appears to Moses at the burning bush and promises to deliver his people. But the setup for God's action is the declaration to the reader. God heard and he remembered his covenant. He saw and he knew. He understood. He, He felt compassion for his people. 
And so I think even linking back to that wonderful passage, the author of Psalm 115 would have us take confidence that even as God's blessings may be future, his remembrance of his covenant, his remembrance of his promises is past. It's, it's never a period where God forgets, but our hope is one day he'll remember. No, he has remembered. He will bless. That's the movement. The Lord remembers his covenant and his people. The Lord remembers his covenant and people. Um, the next thing we see is this emphatic promise that the Lord will bless all who trust him. All who trust him. We saw a threefold repetition in verses 9 through 11. But here in verses 12 through 13, the, the, the repetition of blessing goes up even further. Once, he will bless us. Two, he will bless the house of Israel. Three, he will bless the house of Aaron. Four, he will bless those who fear him. Four times we're told he will bless us. Called to trust him three times. A promise of blessing four times. And then adding to the third category. Remember we have the house of Israel, the house of Aaron. Those who fear the Lord, we now have the great and the small. And again, the emphasis being, even as you trust God, his blessings will far outdo you. He will bless to all who trust him. If you're ever tempted in thinking, God won't be mindful of me. I'm too little. I'm too small. I'm too unimportant. I'm too far away. There's emphatic scripture that no, the small and the great, to all who trust him, he will bless, who fear the Lord. This is, a, this is a language speaking of, of social position. In Deuteronomy uh, 117, Moses instructing the judges says this, you shall not be partial in your judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike, the rich and the poor, the mighty and the weak. God will bless those who fear him, no matter how small, weak, poor, and insignificant you may be. If you will trust and fear him, he will bless you. And the repetition makes this emphatic. If God says something once, we should listen. When he starts repeating himself, we should really pay attention and listen. And we get three times, you need to trust God. If you fear him, trust him. Act on his word, and he will bless. He will bless. He will bless. The Lord remembers his covenant people. The Lord will bless all who trust in him. This brings us point C then to a blessing for those who trust the Lord. So the movement is this call to trust God, a, an announcement of the confidence that God will bless, now to a horizontal blessing. The congregation is blessing each other. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Quickly two points here. A blessing on those For those who trust the Lord. First, a blessing that the Lord would multiply you. May the Lord multiply you. Ever since the garden, God's blessing is seen in part through the the growth of his people. And the book of Deuteronomy even begins in in 111. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. And that's what's envisioned here. In fact, I think what's envisioned here is something that ultimately will be fulfilled in the eschaton. Um, the, type of, the type of abundant population growth predicted by Zechariah. Listen to Zechariah 10. Remember, we have study of Zechariah. Um, they're, they're returning from Babylon, but they're a meager group. There's only a couple, you know, 50, 30,000 of them. They were once millions strong. Now they're this meager group with this rundown temple. And Zechariah shows up to encourage the rebuilders of the temple, to encourage them. And even as they're under pagan rule, He makes this promise in Zechariah 10, 
verses 8 through 10. I will whistle for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them. They shall be as many as they were before. Though I scatter them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall return and live. I'll bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I'll bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. And so they're calling on God's blessing. They're blessing each other with this, this growth and abundance and multiplying. Um, as they're in the congregation of those who trust God, they're not only calling on God to bless them, but they're blessing each other. It's, it's a wonderful picture of the joy that comes of being amongst the people who trust God. May the Lord multiply you. And notice again, we return to this phrase, the maker of heaven. May the maker of heaven and earth bless you. May you be blessed by the Lord who made earth and heaven. Now this is the beginning of our, coming back around to the themes of the beginning. If you remember at the beginning, what's the contrast? The gods are impotent and futile, Verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And now we're back to the God who made heaven. Verse 16, we'll be continuing that thought, the heavens are the Lord's heavens. What's the point? Whereas the gods of the peoples, the idols, are impotent, powerless, blind, deaf, dumb, our God made the heavens. He made everything. You see in a telescope where you look up at the night sky, our God made that. What's the implication? He can abundantly bless. He can abundantly do his good pleasure. The God who made the heavens will not be frustrated in doing his purposes for you or for me. May the maker of heaven and earth bless you. May the maker of heaven and earth bless you. So we've seen the blessings of trusting the Lord. There's a call to bless. We see the consequence of Trusting, and then a blessing for those who trust the Lord. A call to trust, the consequence of trust, and a blessing for those who trust. Now, the last three verses, verses 16 through 18, praise to the God of heaven. And here, finally, the psalm will end where it began. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Praise to the God of heaven. And here we start to get more grounds for praising God. We've seen already what are the reasons to praise the Lord in verse 1 and 2, well, verse 1, because of his steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should God be glorified? Because he's the covenant-making, saving God, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's why. Why else? We saw in verse 9, 10, and 11, because he is their help and their shield, echoing back to God's deliverance from Egypt, the conquest of Canaan, Moses' farewell song to the people of Israel just across the Jordan from Canaan. Now we get another reason. Not only has God made covenants of salvation, not only has God done great acts of deliverance and salvation, God has given us the earth to the children of man. Keep, keep your finger here and turn to Psalm 8. It's another psalm that pauses to just wonder at the goodness and the greatness of God and, and so blessing man. Psalm 8. Let's 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foe to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds in the heavens, and the fish in the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's given us dominion. Over the earth. The heavens are his dwelling place, but he's given us dominion and authority over the earth. Here's another reason to praise God. The God who's the maker of heavens, our God who's in the heavens and does as he pleases, has given the earth to the children of man. I think this is man indistinct. This isn't just Israel, this is just mankind. He has given the earth to man. Which brings up the next thought. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will praise the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Now here we get the counterpoint, right, to verse 2. Why should the nations say, where is their God? And we, we understood that to be, oh Lord, silence the nations. Well, here we see a contrast. There are those who go down to the earth into silence. Verse 18, we... Praise the Lord forevermore. Here's here's the contrast. For the dead, why praise the Lord? First, for he has given the earth to man. Second, for the dead, go down into silence. No matter how much pomp and how loud the mockings of the nations, they will all go down to the grave. The greatest men and women who ever lived are dead. Joseph Stalin is dead. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. You go through the list, people who were mighty in their day, people who had scoffing voices, and they are silent. And that's the emphasis here, is the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do those who go down into silence, but we, in contrast. So there's an implicit understanding of either resurrection or eternal life in contrast, because there are those who die and are silent, but we, in contrast, will bless the Lord, from this time forth and forever. And the only way forever works is if we, as we go down to the grave, something different happens to us. It's not, it's, not, it's not explicit here in resurrection, but clearly there's a confidence that we who trust the Lord will not go down to the grave and be silent like others. We will continue to praise and bless the Lord. That is another reason to praise the God of heaven. For we will give praise to the Lord now and forever now and forever. And in this case, it's similar to the last psalm we looked at. Turn to Psalm 102. How did Psalm 102 end? A similar consideration of God's greatness and grandeur. In Psalm 102, it was the Lord's eternality. Remember? Let's read the last few verses of Psalm 102, 25 through 28. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will 
all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same. Your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. And what was the picture here? God is utterly eternal. Utterly. And his people are established before him with him. And here, similar thought, from this time forth and forevermore, we will bless the Lord, praise the Lord. Which brings to the final concluding thought. It's almost as if the psalmist, after considering these wonderful truths, God has given the earth to man. And in contrast to all others who go to death and are silent, who go to death and speak no more, we who trust the Lord have the privilege of praising and blessing the Lord now and forevermore. And he wants to begin, praise the Lord, just wants to begin even now with a doxology. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So in review, Psalm 115, at its heart is a call to trust the Lord. Three times the call goes out to the house of Israel, to the house of Aaron, to those who fear the Lord. And this confident promise of blessing to those who will fear and trust the Lord. So what, is it, what does that mean for us? This side of the cross. I think it means a couple things. Fearing God means taking him seriously. And the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus says in a similar note that when the Holy Spirit comes and begins his work in the hearts of men, he'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So truly, a a knowledge of God and of salvation begins with a fear of the Lord, a taking of him seriously. This summer, um, this late August, September time period, marks 20 years. It was 20 years ago today that I began to grow in a sense of dread and fear of standing before God. A growing erosion of my confidence that somehow my, you know, I was a plucky, likable type of person. I mean, I made mistakes, but God would surely, you know, on such a sweetheart as me, he'd surely take pity. And I began to have this growing, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. He fears God. And then I began to read my Bible. And initially, that was even scarier still. Came to those passages where your righteousness must surpass the Pharisees. I'm like, I'm in trouble. And you read about those who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things for you? But finally, as I'm reading through, I, I began to get a better and better understanding of what God has done to save. Now, this, the exodus from Egypt that's mentioned here ultimately pictures the ultimate exodus Jesus accomplished. Remember when we were going through Luke and he was on the mountaintop and he spoke with Elijah and Moses about his exodus he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem? Because just as in the exodus God redeems his people from slavery from Pharaoh, the New Testament speaks of our slavery to sin. And just as we were dead in our trespasses, he's made us alive. And so for us, trusting in the Lord is trusting in the God who has spoken and in his deliverance. And, and we see even more clearly now than the psalmist could have that God's full and final deliverance comes in the death of his son on the cross. You have every reason to fear God. You do. And you have every reason to trust him. And the blessing is for those who do both. To fear God, to take him seriously. Take your sin seriously. Stop looking at it as a small thing. Stop minimizing and excusing it. Take take it seriously. Take him seriously. Take his holiness seriously. And trust in him and the Savior he has sent, his Son. For all 
who call upon his name will be saved, the great, the small, the religious, the non-religious, the God is not a respecter of persons, the Jew and to the Greek, male and female, slave and free. There's a blessing and a deliverance for those who will trust God. This psalm contrasts with all other would-be saviors, with all other would-be deliverers, with all other would-be gods, is the God who made the heavens and the earth. And he will bless and he will save, but only to those who fear him and who trust in him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, I uh, pray that you'd give us a trust and a fear of you, that we would take you and your word seriously, that we would act upon it, that we would not lean on our own understanding, that we would not look to other saviors or other gods, but that we would look to you and to you alone, that we would experience your blessing. Lord God, may your praise be on our lips. May your confidence be in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.